Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil probably needs no introduction. He's been on the podcast before, and he's been everywhere else before. He is an astrophysicist who hosts his own podcast, Star Talk Radio, as well as the Emmy Award-winning National Geographic shows Star Talk and Cosmos. He is the author of more than a dozen books, including Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, and most recently with his co-author James Treffel, Cosmic Queries, Star Talk's guide to who we are, how we got here, and where we're going. He is also the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York. And today we talk about our place in the universe. And we spend much of the time on the question of whether or not we are alone here. So we discuss the famous Fermi problem, i.e., where is everybody? And that naturally grades into a conversation about recent events on Earth where a renewed interest in UFOs has captured a lot of mainstream attention. We also cover the public understanding of science a bit, the impossible existence of flat earthers who still live among us, and um, then I try to lead Neil once again into a conversation about politics and attendant moral panics, and you can judge the results of that for yourselves. Anyway, it's always great to speak with Neil, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And now I bring you Neil deGrasse Tyson. I am back once again with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Sam. I mean, you know, I love your show, and I never think of myself being on it, so that when I'm on it, it's like, ooh, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> because all of your guests and all of your, your, your conversations are, you know, they, anything that I do, just as a scientist and as a popularizer, you kick it up a notch and you just inject it into all of the most controversial things going on <laughs> in society. And I'm just not that brave. You know? <laughs> okay. so I, I feel like I don't, you know, I should not be on your show. That I just feel that way sometimes. Well, I hope not to uh, confirm that hypothesis, but uh, I will lead you to the edge of your courage and uh, you can pull me back. <laughs> okay. But it's great to hear your voice. And But before we go all over the place here, I want to just touch upon your book because you, you have a new book out, which is uh, Cosmic Queries, Star Talk's Guide to Who We Are, How We Got Here, and Where We're Going. And uh, well, let's start with the the area of just pure scientific interest, and then we can go to points of controversy or not as the, the hour unfolds. But this is, this is really a gorgeous book. It's, it's published by National Geographic, so it, it's, it's really well illustrated. And in reading it, I, I, I confess I have not read all of it, but I've read a lot of it. And um, it just struck me immediately that this is the book you would want to hand to a smart, inquisitive, science-interested uh, teenager, you know, or like anywhere from, I don't know, 14 on up. It's just perfectly pitched to like a, a person's first book on science. Is, was that at all your intention in writing it? It was interesting you say that because what I learned from my very first book, which was many, many moons ago, I wrote a book and I said, well, if I'm going to write a book on science, I want to make sure everyone 
understands everything that's in it, right? And so uh, my first book was a question and answer book on the universe, and I wrote it in a playful way. It was I had a pen name for the Merlin, dear Merlin. You know how mm. does the universe work? And Merlin would recall a conversation with Einstein. It was a fun, playful thing, and all the questions were asked by full-up adults. When the book came out, I found that when adults read it and they understood everything in it, they thought to themselves, well, this is clearly not for me. This is for someone younger. And I said, wow. <laughs> so people are accustomed to when they encounter adults, when they encounter a science book, they expect some of it to sit above their head. Yeah. And so I said, oh, okay. So my next book, I'm going to have two chapters that's guaranteed to be above everybody's head. And no one thought about giving those to kids. But Cosmic Queries, I think, is a celebration of the deepest sources of curiosity that exist within us as humans. And all of those cylinders, if I'm allowed to use an internal combustion engine mm -hmm. reference, all of those cylinders are firing for all of us when we were younger, right? Every day is, oh, what is that? And it's a flower and a tree and a rock and, a, and why, why is this and why is that? And some of those questions get very deep, like how did it all get here? And why are we all here? And are we alone? How will it all end? And so that deeper category of question got elevated and put into this book. But the whole concept of Cosmic Queries is stoked monthly in our, our podcast, Star Talk. Star Talk, we, we interview celebrities. And I have a comedian who's a co-host, so it's very, they're, they're a force of, of levity on a show where content might have their own force of gravity. Mm -hmm. And I dial those in so that we have a consistent product each time. But one of the more successful variants on that show is called Cosmic Queries, where our fan base just simply asks us questions. And we culled the deepest subset of those and put them into, into this book. So I th for me, it's a celebration of what it is to be human and be on one side of knowing something and want to cross over into another side of enlightenment. Mm. And yeah, it serves, it serves the curiosity in us all. Uh, I, I think some adults, they, they've lost it. And so maybe it'll fan the embers and maybe ignite a flame once again, because you know it was there when you were younger. So I think that's, how you, that's, I think that's why you are feeling that way about it, mm -hmm. because it makes you feel young again and, and wide-eyed. And thanks for noticing the National Geographic DNA in the book. It's a, it's a beautiful book. And we didn't stop at just science illustrations. There's art as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, carefully chosen artwork that evokes the themes or the ideas in the narrative. So, yeah, so thanks for calling that out. Yeah, so is it always an exciting time in astronomy and astrophysics, or have there been periods of stagnation analogous to those in physics. I, I, you know, I get the sense that in physics, certainly you know, in any given generation, there's an impressive feeling of, you know, at least in, on the theory side, of spinning your wheels and not necessarily making discernible progress. But I just intuitively, it seems like it could be different in astronomy and astrophysics. Is, is there... That, that's a perceptive point, and let me attempt to address it, whether or not I fully answer it. In physics, what you're referring to, I think, is sort of the, the revolution or evolution of ideas, mm -hmm. right? And you don't get those every day. You know, you, you get them maybe once in a generation. 
and all the years in between are filling in the gaps between those ideas. And those don't tend to get headlines, even if they're intrinsically exciting to a physicist. So in astrophysics, uh, occasionally ideas matter deeply, yes, but what happens more frequently is that weird stuff gets discovered, right? Or, or, or interesting stuff, water on the moon, on the craters of the moon, a black hole in, in the galaxy, in the center of the galaxy, a photograph of the black hole mm. in the center of the galaxy. I mean, so things that exist in the universe, because the universe is so vast and it has so many different kinds of objects that in all of our catalogs, we probably missed something that is one in a million or even one in a billion. And when that gets discovered, that's headlines. And so no, it doesn't rethink the whole field, but it is definitely fun to inventory and talk about and characterize it and try to figure it out. Now, I did do one thing for a while. I was a postdoc at Princeton and Princeton has our feature journal, the Astrophysical Journal, all on one wall, okay? From this very first episode, for his very first uh, issue, 1895, the Astrophysical Journal, up to the present. And I thought to myself, hmm, let me do the, this experiment. And I found the exact middle of that wall mm. of all the journals. And I said, I wonder what date this is. And it was... Five years ago. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, so this would be sort of the, the, the halfway point. And as I did this, and I kept having it, what I found is that the halfway interval of time was 18 years. It, it fluctuated between mm -hmm. 15 and 18 years. So the total amount that was published doubled every 15. Now, not all of it is quality. You get that. I understand. But as a first pass measure of the pace of things, this was highly illuminating to me. And, and it said that, yeah, I mean, you, when, if you're living on the exponential curve, every day looks like you're living in special times. And I remembered going back, I have a book on the sun written by a, an astronomer named Charles Young. In fact, he was at Princeton in his day. I have two versions of the book, one that came out in like the 1880s, late 1880s, and another one came out in the 1890s. It was like the second edition. And like, you know, five years or eight years had gone by, and you read the preface in the second edition, it said, our advances are so great in our understanding of the sun. We had to come out with another. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, you guys have no clue yeah. <laughs> what a great advance is. Yet, of course, that's what it felt like when you're on an exponential growth curve. Mm -hmm. Everybody feels like they're living in special times. The biggest change, again, I have a, a layperson's view of, of advances in, in astronomy, really, to take the, the observational side of things for a moment. The biggest news in my lifetime, I think, I mean, leaving aside very sexy things like gravitational waves, is just that the fact that we crossed over from talking merely about planets in our solar system to confirming their existence elsewhere. I mean, so we, we lost Pluto, quite famously, but we gained. I don't know how many planets at this point. How many extrasolar planets have been cataloged? Over, over four thousand. Yeah, and it's yeah. rising fast. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, what what's the safe assumption now that our that our own galaxy has hundreds of billions of planets? I mean, and, and I mean, what, what's the yeah? So the, the, in, 
we do that calculation and you in the section you know are we alone in the universe but you can ask a different set of philosophical questions something that might titillate you you can look at all of the layers of bias that are inherent in how we even go about answering those questions because even in your very statement you said well how many planets because the life that you know and the life that i know lives on a planet mm. but maybe life also lives on moons maybe it lives in atmosphere maybe it lives in gas clouds so we go through all of the all of the biases there's a carbon bias right we are carbon based life some of these biases i think are fully legitimate but if you really want to search with as wide a net as possible uh, also consider the the goldilocks zone so much yeah. was written and talked about for decades from the 1950s and 60s when this concept was first formulated where you, we know life thrives needs and thrives on liquid water so if you're going to stick a planet in a in a star system not too close it'll it'll evaporate the water not too far it will freeze the water so there's this zone this belt around any star where a planet would naturally have liquid water and you need atmospheric conditions to sustain it of course but you're not fighting it it it, it would happen naturally if the conditions allowed and so then we learned wait a minute the sun is not the only source of energy in town all right jupiter and its tidal stresses on its surrounding moons is a source of energy so one of Jupiter's moons, Io, is the most volcanically active place in the entire solar system because Jupiter is pumping it with energy. And so now we have to think if life needs the warmth, warming energy of a heat of a it just needs an energy source, why does it have to have a star? Mm. And so you just go on. and then we learn every model of the solar system that we construct that of any star system when it's born, most of the planets that formed are on unstable orbits. And they fly out into interstellar inter, uh, space. It may be that there are more vagabond planets than there are planets bound to their local star systems. Mm. So you say, well, that's not a good prospect for life. However, Earth still has energy sources in its core. Yeah. Is, is, this, is this how you get volcanoes and, 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 and all these um, mid-sea vents that are pumping very hot waters into the bottoms of the oceans? If you're a life form thriving on that, you don't even care if you were ever orbiting a sun. You could, you could be a frozen lake bed, on, a frozen uh, ice on top, but down below, you could be doing the backstroke in your warmed hot tub. Hmm. So this notion that we want to look for planets and look for a habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, may be needlessly restrictive as we, as we go forward. Hmm. So now what are your, how have your intuitions been pushed around with respect to the prospect that we are alone versus the prospect uh, seemingly equally astonishing that the, the galaxy and the, and the universe is teeming with life. Have you had um, changes in your, the, the way you weight those probabilities over the course of your life? Yeah, that's a great way to ask that question. I would say the probabilities have, as, the, as they've changed, they've changed only because we learned new things but not because I had to reevaluate what I was already thinking. I've always been very open to possibilities of the universe, just given the size and the diversity of objects and the age. You know, practically anything you can imagine being possible, we think is going to be possible. 
But there's some other really good reasons for some of the bias that we are invoking here. For example, there's a famous episode of the original Star Trek where they encounter a life form that's basically made of rock. And it, it moves through rock like we move through air. And it's rock-based life. And uh, an active ingredient in a lot of minerals is silicon. So it's silicon-based life. And this was their attempt to do this in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And, and this was silicon-based life as opposed to carbon-based life. Well, they didn't pull silicon out of their ass, right? Why, why do people think of silicon-based life? If you go back to the periodic table and remember why elements form columns, the columns have similar valence electrons, which means if you're above or below another element in a table, in the periodic table, you can make similar molecules with all the same other atoms. Mm. Well, let's find carbon. Well, there it is at the top of the chart, number 12. What's directly below it? Silicon. So every atom you can, every molecule you can make with carbon, you can make with silicon. So why not create an entire parallel life system where silicon is the base instead of carbon? And so that's a perfectly legitimate chemical broadening of your bias as you go search. My rebuttal to that is you don't need to do that because first carbon is hugely sticky. Mm-hmm. It sticks to itself and multiple bonds and, and silicon also. But what you really win out is that carbon, depending on where exactly you are in the universe, is between five and 10 times as abundant. So carbon is already going to be at it before silicon you know, figures out how to put on its pants in the morning. And so I don't need to really think of life forms based on an isotope of bismuth or even silicon. So I think carbon is, is the way to go here, just given its diversity of, chemical, of chemistry that it offers us. And I don't know if I directly answered your question. Oh, have I changed any of my evaluations? No. Yeah. So the Fermi paradox is what you're dancing around there. And I, I want to clarify the Fermi paradox because I don't think I think most people who invoke it don't know the full weight that it carries, all right? So you can do the thought experiment. So so Enrico Fermi, the physicist, famously quipped, if there's life in the the galaxy, then the galaxy ought to be teeming with life and they would have visited us by now. Where are they, okay? So maybe they're not there at all. It might be worth spelling out why that seems so logical. I mean, just with respect to any kind of time yeah, window but, uh, yeah, in which... Ex- exactly. Yeah. So, so you can ask yourself, well, how wide is the galaxy? So 100,000 light years. Okay. So that feels intractable. So let's say you never, you never get to the speed of light. But let's say we get to 20% the speed of light. That means you can cross the galaxy in 500,000 years. All right. But most stars are not the diameter of the galaxy away from each other. They're much nearer. So for example, Alpha Centauri system from Earth, four light years away, 20% the speed of light, you get there in 20 years, okay? And you you can star hop. So imagine, uh, this is one of those, I forgot whose machine they got named after. You go to a planet and then it's with a robot and then the robot builds two copies of itself and then they launch to other planets. Okay. And 
So, or even people or aliens. Mm. So they arrive on a planet and then they say, okay, time to go to more planets. And now you go from one planet to two to four to eight, the star systems. It turns out you, if you did that, only going to two once you land on one, you can, uh, it's two to the end power, right? So however many years are loaded in your N, you can easily completely populate the entire galaxy in an evolutionary timescale, mm. easily. Yeah. And so like you, you can do it within a few, like, you know, tens of millions of years. And, but the planet is around for billions of years. So, so where is everybody? That's the, that's right. the question. And, and the, the other intuition, the, the other element to this picture is that if a, if you complex life is ubiquitous, you would expect certain civilizations to be millions of years ahead of us. I mean, because, because given, you know, nearly 14 billion years to start this experiment, it would just be a miracle if all complex life were at, at precisely the same point in its technological evolution. So to, to find ourselves not surrounded by evidence of technological alien life is to suggest that it might not exist because, you know, again, where is everybody? Yeah, and you're right. We are very Johnny-come-latelys in this. Mm -hmm. First, you have the 14-billion-year-old age of the universe. Then you have the five, four and a half billion year old solar system. And then ask, you know, how old is the branch of the tree of life called primates? All right. If primates were your best chance, or mammals, let's say, were your best chance of, quote, intelligence on Earth, we really didn't get underway until after the dinosaurs. And that's basically yesterday, 65 million years ago. And the Earth had been around for hundreds of millions of years, cranking out life. So imagine a planetary system that got a billion-year head start on us. Yeah. If there's any forcing vector to, towards intelligence, uh, we would be dwarfed by any such intelligence that manifested itself. And the comparison I like making, and I'll get back to Fermi in just a moment, is this comparison you always hear about the DNA between the chimp, a bonobo, let's say, and a human. You know, it's some high 90, 99, whatever mm -hmm. percent, identical DNA. And the people who want to keep thinking humans are special will say, but what a difference that half a percent makes. And they, they crowd themselves into that half a percent and celebrate all that we are that chimps are not. But I, I'd rather pose the question a little differently and say, suppose the difference between humans and chimps is as small as a half a percent. DNA in the intelligence vector, whatever that vector is. Suppose it is that small. What do you say? Well, what do you mean? We have the Hubble telescope and poetry and philosophy, and they stick a twig in a hole to get termites out. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, maybe the difference between those is small. You don't want to think that way, but imagine it. So now let's imagine an alien who is 5% along that same vector beyond us that we are beyond the chimp. What would we look like to them? I, no reason for me to think that we wouldn't look any different to them than chimps look to us. Because yeah. a smart chimp can stack boxes and reach a banana. That's, uh, toddlers can do that. 
So what does a smart human do? Well, we can, you know, roll Stephen Hawking forward. Here's a smart human. And they'll, they'll chuckle and say, oh, he, der he derives black hole theories in his, in his brain, just like little Timmy over here who just came home from preschool. So, in the, and that's a half a percent. So now imagine 5%, 10%. And, and our, their simplest expression of an idea would transcend our smartest capacity to comprehend. In the same way you walk up to a chimp and say, uh, what time is it? They have no idea what your time is. Mm. You know, you want a cup of coffee at a Starbucks, going to catch a plane? Do you want to go to the library? None of this makes any sense to them, and they're our simplest sentences. So I think about this all the time, leaving me to wonder whether the search for intelligent life, SETI, is itself a bit of hubris, mm -hmm. because it assumes that some other species has our intelligence and not something so far beyond us that they would take no interest in who and what we are. And one of the solutions to the Fermi, Fermi paradox is that we are to the aliens what worms are to us. You don't walk down the street um, and a worm crawls out from the moist soil. You don't say, gee, I wonder what that worm is thinking. Let me go understand that. Unless you're a wormologist, no, mm. you're not thinking that. So one of them is that they studied Earth and there's no sign of intelligent life <laughs> to interest them. But I, I have a, my favorite explanation for the Fermi paradox. And I forgive me for not remembering who to credit this to, but I don't take ownership of this idea. It's whatever drive is required for you to want to, quote, colonize planets with abandon, right? You go to a planet, you have offspring, and they colonize two planets, and they go two planets. Whatever that drive is has the seeds of its own unraveling built within it. Because what happens when the planets start becoming scarce? Your urge to do this, risking life and limb, that means it's deep in you. You need that planet. You want that planet. And so you go out and then there's somebody else trying to claim the planet. And then you have interstellar warfare, competing over the limited mm. real estate of the planets in the galaxy. Yeah, and then you think to yourself, it's, well, it's a version of the, of the great filter argument that um, I believe is original to Nick Bostrom. He's he certainly spoken about it a lot. He, he might have gotten it from somebody else, but I think it's Bostrom. But the, I mean, the, the more generic idea here is that it puts most of the onus on technology. It's just once you get technically sophisticated enough, you have almost certainly built destructive technology. And, you know, whether this is specifically weapons of war or artificial intelligence or something that gets away from you and a sufficient technical prowess to colonize the galaxy becomes self-terminating but almost by definition i mean there's just there's too many ways to kill yourself and to have all your incentives as a species not aligned that uh, you just you self-extinguish so i would say that was that would be a subcategory or maybe they're both categories of the self-destruct phenomenon mm. in high intelligent creatures because what this specifically implicates is the same urges that that infused colonial europe mm -hmm. right so here you have spain portugal england uh uh the netherlands and they all want 
to conquer the world. So initially they have their own territory, but then they encounter each other. And then the entire system implodes mm. because they can't share it because in them they want to own it. And so this notion has already played out in this world. And that was the imp implosion of Europe and its colonistic ways going from the age of the great explorers to the age of the great collapse of the colonial empires. So it's not a stretch to imagine this as sort of a fundamental truth without having to analyze the psychological profile of the alien. It's just one of these basic, simple facts that might mm. manifest no matter the life form. Well, to, to back up for a second and to bring it back to Fermi, how has your sense of the um, proliferation uh, of life or lack thereof changed um, once we discover things like am amino acids in, in meteorites and in the tails of comets, which is to say that the building blocks of life seem fairly ubiquitous? Yeah, and that's part of what, that's what we all find encouraging for those who are rooting for life elsewhere, because the, I, can, I can encapsulate that statement in a simple fact. If you rank order the abundance of chemical elements in the universe, the number one element is hydrogen, number two, which is chemically active. The number two is helium, which is not chemically active, but it's there, but it's a big number two. Number three is oxygen. Number four is carbon. Number five is nitrogen. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So yeah. Everything's four on the out of the five top, <laughs> top elements yeah. in the freaking universe. And, and, and the seventh is a ham sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> are contained in what we call biochemistry. And so that's why, you know, like I said, if we were made of some exotic, like I said, a isotope of bismuth, you might have an argument to say, God did something special on earth because this stuff can't, we, is not found anywhere else. But if we, so if anything, life is opportunistic, okay? Mm. <laughs> it makes very good use of what it has. And, it, and one other fact, which is not often cited, but it has to be in the equation, is, uh, you know, the earliest fossil evidence, it comes in of life, it comes in around 3.8 billion years ago. And Earth began 4.5, 4.6. So for the longest while, decades, people subtracted those two numbers and said, all right, life took 600 million years. That's still pretty fast, given that we're four and a half billion years old. Okay, that's still pretty fast. It's small compared to the life, the, the life expectancy of Earth. But it's even better than that. Again, I'm value judging the speed of this. Because the early Earth was subjected to what we call the period of heavy bombardment. There were two such periods. Heavy bombardment, Earth is still, the polite way to say it is, accreting matter from the nascent solar system. The, the more violent way to put it is, it is being slammed constantly by comets and asteroids because it has a strong gravity in its region, it's clearing out its orbit, and all that material ends up going somewhere and it lands back on Earth. And so the Earth is gaining mass, and by gaining mass, it gets, gains even more gravity. It becomes even better at it. And over that time, Earth's surface is sufficiently pelted that the temperatures prevent the formation of complex molecules. 
because under high temperatures, the bonds, the molecular bonds break. Mm. And every time you try to experiment with it, it gets broken apart. So it's not conducive to the experimentations of life. So if you're going to start the, the clock, wait until the period of heavy bombardment is over. That's like 4 billion years ago, not 4.6. So now you start the clock. Now Earth has some chance of cooling down and making complex uh, molecules uh, and starting the birth of biochemistry. And there it is. Earth went from organic molecules to self-replicating life within between one and 200 million years in the early universe, mm -hmm. in the early Earth. And that's stupefying. Yeah. So if it did it that fast using native ingredients on, on, on a planet, just formed like anybody, any other planet, then no one who studied this problem is walking around saying we're alone in the universe. Although there, there is the additional improbability, whatever it is, of getting from life, single cell and I guess multicellular, to a technologically advanced civilization. I mean, you, you can argue that we have barely accomplished it and there's really no sign, but for us, there's no sign of natural selection producing anything like civilization without us. So again, the, the, we've got we're sampling this in a very narrow time window, and who knows what the next million years might bring. But I guess let me just sharpen up your the Fermi intuition here. If you had to bet or assign a probability to one of two outcomes or one or two states of affairs, one we're alone with respect to complex life or, or technological sentient civilization building life. So there might be microbes elsewhere in the galaxy, but there's nothing like us pining for, for other star systems versus the galaxy was or is teeming with advanced life. And, and for whatever reason, we don't see it, which seems less astonishing to you or less unlikely. Yeah, I don't I have to think about it the way you worded it, but let me, it's because I don't entirely agree with what part of your premise. Mm. So look at beavers. Right, beavers are mammals, they're large brain, like relative to other branches on the tree of life, and they fully exploit the resources in their environment. Oh, there's a tree. I'm going to use that tree to dam this river, and I'm going to make an underground den. All right? Yeah. Is, is that, are we any different? from that we use trees well first we use grass to make huts that was available then we use trees that's pretty convenient then we found metal oh my gosh let's use that okay and then we learn how to how to make alloys let's do that and then we learn chemistry let's do that so yes it takes thresholds of intelligence to exploit your environment even more but the simple act of exploiting an environment is not unique to being human. That's yeah. my first point. Yeah. Second, the Romans were no less smart than anyone who followed them, all right? Smart in terms of the, what their brain could figure out, but they didn't have alien communication technologies. They didn't have radio telescopes. They didn't go into space. So imagine the Roman Empire and aliens are waiting for a return mm. signal back through space and it, yeah. and no return signal. So no, they'll well, say there's no... They're still trying to do a 
arithmetic with their Roman numerals. That was the, <laughs> that was the problem. <laughs> yeah, they needed the Arabic numerals for that one. Yeah, but people forget that Roman numerals do not have a zero. Yeah. You cannot represent a zero with Roman numerals. And that's why the, the calendar, the Christian calendar, Gregorian calendar and the Julian calendar, that there's no year zero. It went from 1 BC to AD 1 mm. and because they, no one could wrap their head around it. So yeah, arithmetic is hard. <laughs> with Roman, I think they would have figured something out. I think they, they were smart folks. In the there. fullness of time. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I take your point and we, we should be humbled by how much change can occur over vast timescales, right? I mean, you look, at a, you look at the rest of what's on Earth with us now, and it's hard to imagine anything evolving into the kind of species that could do more than we're managing to do. But we're just looking at asynchronous lines of evolution, right? And given yeah. millions of years, basically everything is, is potentially available. And millions is short compared with billions, right? Yeah. A billion is 1,000 times longer than a million. And here we were, some kind of fist size or smaller shrew or some kind of rodent running underfoot, trying to avoid becoming hors d'oeuvres for T-Rex. And that's how it would have stayed if the dinosaurs didn't just get unlucky. And an asteroid takes them out, pries open the niche, an ecological niche, that allows mammals to evolve into something more ambitious than a rodent. Meanwhile, rodents are still among us. So I want to impress upon people, if they didn't otherwise sort of wrap their head around it, that we went from rodents to humans in 65 million years, and that's a vanishingly small fraction of a billion years, and Earth has been around for 4 billion years. So now here's the tricky part. If you line up, this is a little thought experiment, if you just lay Earth's timeline out on, a, on the wall, left to right, beginning to end, and then you, you blindfold yourself, like, you know, pin the tail on the donkey, and, just, and then you walk up to it, you don't know where you are, and you pin the tail. Most of the places on that timeline you pin it, Earth only had single-celled life. Complex life was relatively late, last half a billion years. Mm. And then what we call intelligent life and big brain mammals, even smaller than that. The point is, if it ever, if Earth is any indication, if it ever gets to that, then it's fast. So imagine mm. it got to that sooner. Or the other side, flip, coin, flip side of that is, imagine the asteroid never came. There'd still be dinosaurs here today. You know how I know that? Because dinosaurs were around as a community for 300 million years before the dinosaur, before the asteroid. So what's mm. another 65 on top of the 300? They'd still be here. So mm. what this tells us is what we think of as intelligence clearly is not important for survival. Otherwise, roaches would have really big brains, right? So maybe the big mistake here is thinking that intelligence is an inevitable consequence of evolution, when all it would have taken was one broken branch then that could have taken out all the mammals from the vertebrate chain, and then we would not have anything like we think of today as intelligent creatures. Yeah, but if you run this experiment billions upon billions of times, it's just... Well, there you go. That's the answer. As long as we have... On the, assu on the assumption that we're by in no way unique, and we being you know, species of Earth, and 
if multicellular life is ubiquitous in the galaxy or in the universe, and you just you just have those hundreds of billions, ultimately trillions of similar experiments to run, then it's very difficult to imagine that you don't have uh, at minimum tens of millions of cases of advanced technological life. Yeah, that's how you get to win the argument in the yeah. end. You say, oh, what are the chances of that happening? One in a million? Okay, one yeah. in a million, and there's a hundred billion star systems out there. <laughs> so run the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. No one is thinking we're alone out there. Yeah. Is it, well, but is that actually the opinion in the field? If you, if you polled people at a, at a conference of physicists and astrophysicists and astronomers, you think a, a large majority would say that advanced life is ubiquitous in the universe? I think the only sensible way to do it is to just, we have an a sample of one, so let's just start with that, and ask what fraction of the total timeline of Earth has Earth had what we would call intelligent life, or, or big-brained life? Yeah. And what fraction of that period has it had intelligent, the Drake equation, and what fraction of that period has intelligent life with technology? So if you do that, then that gives you a set of fractions that you can layer onto the entire stellar population of the galaxy. And even using highly conservative estimates, you do not come out with us being the only life form around. And like I said, if you look at the actual map of the galaxy where we have found these 4,000 exoplanets, it's this tiny little circle. around. The star has to be close enough to get good data to know whether it has another planet around it. Mm. And you say to yourself, gosh, this is what leads to that analogy that comes from the SETI Institute with Jill Tarter and, and Seth Shostak, where they say, if you're going to say, well, how could, have we found life? We haven't found life yet. And that's like taking a cup, an empty a glass, and scooping it into the ocean and pulling it out and saying, the ocean has no whales. <laughs> <laughs> from this tiny sample of the vast ocean that you know you have yet to search. Mm, yeah. But what do you think the, the limit is on getting uh, a truly optical look at an exoplanet? I mean, w w any of these large telescopes that you describe in your book coming online, how close are we to seeing anything of, of interest in another solar system? Yeah, that's, that, that's a great question. So you can ask, let's ask it another way. If you're on the moon, how well can you see sort of cities on Earth? Not very well. Those images you see on the screensavers where you have the space station orbiting, you know, they've pumped up the brightness of those cities so they can stand out as beautifully as they do. Mm. But if you're going to go a quarter million miles away from them and, and stand on the moon, become much less visible. And that's our nearest neighbor in space. And allow me to quantify this. Imagine a schoolroom globe. And I'm always sad because there's always color coded. And so you think of Earth as a place divided by countries, not unified by land and water and, and atmosphere. That's just me getting sentimentally cosmic on it. But you can ask, well, at what altitude above that globe would you find the International Space Station? Half the people I've asked that come away about a foot from it. It's about a, no, it's three-eighths of an inch mm -hmm. above the surface. All right, now where would the moon be? Well, we're so jaded by how often we see the Earth and moon drawn in a textbook, people tend to put the moon maybe a foot or two away. No, the moon is 30 feet away. Where would Mars be? 
a mile away. Space is vast. So to, to directly image a planet, yes, that could be on our horizon, but to image it in a way where we're going to see roads and cities, I, don't, I think that's unrealistic. But I, have a, I say that, but smiling because I know what we're already up to. Right? You want to see life forms waving back at you. What I want to see is any evidence in the atmosphere that anybody's alive on, the, on that planet's surface. Yeah. And these, these are, we call them collectively biomarkers. Right. So if you, if, so I didn't know this. I had to figure this out. One of these, my own, that I gleaned as I got older and wiser and learned. And so you grow up and you see these science fiction stories. And take Star Trek again, for example. You know, they never donned spacesuits. Right. You ever mm. wonder about mm. that? <laughs> they, never, never. I, They're I, walking I, around on all kinds of planets. Yeah. No space. Okay. I, well, I also I, wonder about the suits they were wearing, but. That's another matter. Yeah. That's the 60s. Yeah. You were too young. Yeah. Okay. I remember. All right. So I get to pull rank on you with my age yeah. here. So, so they never wear spacesuits. Why? Because they have sensors. And they say, uh, uh, Captain, it's an oxygen-nitrogen atmosphere. Okay, let's go down. As though if you searched enough, you would just simply find oxygen-nitrogen atmospheres. What I didn't know at the time, and I don't think they knew either, is that we only have oxygen because we have life. Right. That's the only reason. And not only because we have life, the life is constantly making oxygen because oxygen chemically is highly reactive. So if you start out with a planet that has, that's born with oxygen, it'll go away. It is going to react with all manner of things and it'll go to zero in very little time. So the fact that we have an active fraction, 20, 21% air of oxygen, tells you something is constantly making it, and that's the photosynthesis in plant life. So if you find a planet that has a stable supply of oxygen, oh my gosh, bump that to the top of the list. And there are other unstable molecules, like methane, although there are other ways you can make methane. But the people who are in the business of studying the chemistry of atmospheres, they've got a laundry list of chemical, of molecules that will be the product of all kinds of life that we know goes on here on Earth. And one of them right. was phosphine. You may remember the news stories. They found phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, where it's not so hot, scalding hot on the surface. You come up a little, it's a little cooler. Phosphine, no one can figure out how you make phosphine other than by the natural chemistry of life itself. So that, got it, that made headlines. I mean, it's been questioned for other mm. reasons since then. But so we have this cottage industry of people studying the atmospheres of exoplanets now that we have the catalogs of exoplanets ready for our perusal. And I think that's where the answers are going to come. Mm. And, what, and one last point about that is <laughs> I joke that if you find a planet that has hydrocarbons in their atmosphere, but also smog and soot and other things, that would be the sure sign of the no intelligent life at all. <laughs> it is. Yes. Polluting its own air. And Look one the last mirror. thing I'll tell you yeah. about the atmosphere is the thickness of our atmosphere is to Earth as the skin of an apple is to an apple. Right. So we think of this as this huge ocean above us when it's not, and it's actually quite fragile. So this connects rather nicely to um, recent news stories 
about um, the aliens in our midst, and um, I got to imagine you were hit with all manner of communication uh, of human origin about this behind the scenes, <laughs> because because even even I was, um, and this is this is not my wheelhouse. But so what we've had, you know, we're recording this in um, just edging into the second week of June, and so we've had recent disclosures in the press that. The Pentagon and uh, the off the Office of Naval Intelligence primarily uh, have thrown up their hands and uh, have admitted that we are in the presence of technology that they can't explain, and they've put forward some classified evidence apparently that is supposedly better than the stuff that has leaked out, and the the media has seized upon this. Uh, they've been really prominent stories that were not at all skeptical. Uh, and not marshalling any of the the legacy of of you know skeptical debunkings of this kind of material uh, in their reporting, and so we have sixty minutes and the Washington Post and the New Yorker, the New York Times, I mean really more or less everyone in sight has given a a very fair and one might even say credulous hearing to these reports. To my eyes, it's just not really clear what's going on. I said this on someone else's podcast, on, on Lex Friedman's podcast, that that I had received a sort of an advanced communication, advanced with respect to the calendar, not with the details, that this was coming. And, you know, I was urged to sort of prepare my brain to receive these uh, startling disclosures so that I could help shape a public conversation about this new consensus, which purported to be, uh, again, it seems to me the, the, the shoe really never quite dropped, and I, I want to get your opinion on this, but what I was asked to anticipate was that the people who are best placed to assess the evidence, the people who have the, the radar evidence, the Navy pilots who have, have the dash cam video, the analysts who have poured over these data for now several decades, they have formed a consensus that there's no way what they're seeing is a mere artifact of glitches in our technology. It does not admit of any truly skeptical interpretation. No, we are in the presence of technology that is so advanced that it could not be of human origin, and we don't know what to make of that fact. Uh, I guess for the first question before I, we, we get your full download, Neil, did anyone contact you and, and ask you to sort of prepare your, your head for what was coming? Yeah, I've, I've been interviewed at least a dozen times in the last 10 days. Most recently, a few hours ago for the daytime ABC show, The View. So that you are correct to recognize that this is, uh, the press is all over this. And they, I think because the government is at the fulcrum, of what's going on. The press feels some, even the mainstream press feels some obligation to treat it with more seriousness than the UFO data collection center, you know, or, or whoever has been the UFO spokesperson over the decades. So I think that upped it a few, a few notches. And so, so yeah, I've been commenting on it almost nonstop. But before the, these stories started to break, did anyone communicate with you about what was coming? No. But I mean, well, I know, I mean, know about the report. 
in, in the sense that when Trump commanded that federal agencies that have data on, on, on unidentified aerial phenomenon, which is the government euphemism for UFO, that they, they need to produce a report and do it within six months. So mm -hmm. that's why it's coming out now, because that was one of the last acts. Oh, by the way, how did that get in? Because it was slipped into the COVID relief bill. <laughs> right? right. And you're not going to vote against the COVID relief bill because there's UFO funding. So you just vote for the whole bill. And so there it is. So that's why it's, it's going on. I mean, I, I have, I have very, I mean, I'm very matter of fact about this and the whole UFO community, they, I, as best as I can sense, they're just angry with me that I'm not just all in on mysterious things being visiting aliens. I'm content with them just being mysterious. Really. You know, the universe brims with mysteries. The question is, what's your first thought? And, and the, the idea that you encounter something you don't understand, and your first thought is, it's aliens. Well, maybe it's not your first thought is, oh, you, you, you lightly discount other things it might be, and go straight to the alien hypothesis. And that's what you're you want. Okay. I don't have a problem with that. I just find it so unconvincing is that I'm not going to devote my professional life to investigating it, but other people are. And I think that's great. And you know something? Mm -hmm. Lights in the sky we can't explain. I would hope some fraction of our 700 bill, whatever it is, billion dollar federal defense budget goes to figuring out what these things are on the possibility they could be a threat. I have no problems with that. Yes. And so, yeah, the Pentagon ought to be involved by all means. Mm -hmm. I found it quite strange that take like the, the 60 Minutes coverage of this and, and the videos they relied on. I think all of those videos, certainly some of them, I believe all of them, have been around for quite some time and were, to my eye, very successfully debunked by at least one person, this, this guy Mike West, who I, I don't know, I actually hadn't heard of before this. I really have not spent much time down the, the rabbit hole of UFOlogy. But um, these same videos that were presented in the 60 Minutes report as being more or less uninterpretable, but by the claim that they were bearing direct evidence of craft moving at moving at speeds and accelerating at rates and, and moving in ways that no human technology could, these videos had already been given a, a very plausible and all too prosaic interpretation by Mike West on YouTube. And, and those YouTube videos, last I looked, only had like 80,000 views, whereas everything else that's come out, out of late has many, many millions. Yeah, the truth is what gets repeated most. Right. But it's That's just, it's very strange that the journalists didn't even tap the skeptic community at all to get a, another side to the story. You know, granted, that probably doesn't cover everything that has been put forward. It certainly doesn't cover the direct experience of Navy pilots who said they were, you know, they're looking at this thing with their own eyes for, you know, hours at a time or you know, every time they you know, fly, many days running. So uh, who knows what to make of that? But it just seems like the journalism, that has risen to this challenge has really has been totally myopic. So I, I, I don't know, know what to make of that, but I'm interested to balance another epiphany or pseudo epiphany I had uh, 
off of you because in anticipating this, so I, I got contacted by somebody who gave me a heads up with respect to all of this happening, and he, he more or less told me, listen, this is, when this other shoe drops, you're going to be in the position of having to acknowledge that all the experts are on the same page, and there's just this blanket declaration that we're in the presence of alien technology, and we, we don't know what to make of it. So prepare your brain for that and figure out what you're going to do. And so I, I, as a, just an exercise in epistemology, I essentially did that. I just said, okay, well, let me price this in. You know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to debunk this. Let's just assume it can't be debunked. And we all agree that we just, you know, we're, we're now in the first act of Close Encounters of the Third Kind or, you know, pick your sci-fi movie. What does that feel like? And what do I then do? And I encountered in myself a very strange state of mind. And it, it was this feeling that I really didn't know whether what would be the I think obviously the most objectively interesting and unsettling disclosure in human history, I didn't know whether that would make a big difference in my life or in society at large, or whether it would even rise to the level of a concern I could keep in view from one day to the next, like whether it would actually supersede the daily idiocy that erupts on both sides of the political spectrum. The prospect that I personally and that we as a society don't have the free attention to pay attention to the most shocking thing that has ever happened and could ever happen in our history, that was just a very strange, you know, I don't know if that's true because I don't know what it's like to actually live through that other shoe dropping in quite that way. But insofar as I could imagine it, I just thought maybe the most astonishing thing has happened and it didn't make a difference. Does that does that re- does that resonate with you at all? I okay, mean, I, I, you might be surprised, uh-huh. or either impressed or disappointed, to learn that I think about that all the time. Here's what I, here's how I've thought about it. I said, okay, in hindsight, we look back. Oh, the Copernican Revolution. Earth is not the center of the known universe. It's just one other planet orbiting the sun. Oh my gosh, did that completely? upturn all of civilization? Not really. You know, philosophers got all excited about it, but people still, you know, harvested their crops and, and still, you know, the, uh, it, it, mo- most of life, they might have given something different to talk about at the office cooler, right, in, in the late 15th century, but otherwise, uh, 16th century, but otherwise, no, and let's keep going. How about Darwin showing that all life is connected and all apes are connected with each other? Yeah, that upset a lot of people. But I don't think it changed what, it didn't change elections. It didn't change, you know, life still went on. Uh, How about, let's go back to the year 1600 when Antoine von Leeuwenhoek perfects the compound microscope. And he has the, 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 oh my gosh, he, who among us would have thought what he did? He said, gee, I wonder what a drop of pond water hmm. looks like under my microscope. Who thinks this? It's just water. It's transparent. What could you possibly see in your microscope? But he does this. And oh my gosh, 
there's you know animalcules swimming a pretty uh, i wonder how long you wait for the next drink of water uh. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah there was skepticism at the time he, he submitted it to the royal society and they wrote back immediately and said anton try to lay off the gin before you write us letters okay <laughs> it was a funny reply mm -hmm. and and of course it's science so they they went and visited his lab and they duplicated his microscope. And sure enough, of course, it's real. And so imagine, in, imagine realizing that there's an entire universe of life forms in that drop of pond water that you never saw. And for the religious community, how could God give us eyes that can't see an entire world of life, the microbial life, which when you got sick, you blamed other things. Now you got something to blame it on. That, it seems to me these are seminal moments in our understanding of our relationship to each other and to other life forms and to the universe in this world. Yet we're all still here and, and we're not, you know. One big difference here, though, is that this, by definition, puts us in relationship to something that is obviously more powerful than we are, right? Anything that can get here and fly around sure. mm -hmm. poses an existential risk to us. Okay, so on that scale, yes, then it will preoccupy all conversations. But just the idea that there's intelligent life in the universe, you're right, the visitation mm -hmm. part, that's different. But if right. we found signals from another life form on another planet, and we have a whole conversation with them, uh, that could just be fun. Mm -hmm. And, oh, we're not alone in the universe any more than we were alone among creatures on this earth, because we have microorganisms that in some ways are more powerful than we are. Just, you know... Tell the microbe that sent you running to the bathroom that you're superior. <laughs> you're the superior life form. You know, tell that to the dysentery bacterium. So, yeah. So I I I I wonder that. And I don't think it will change things. In 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 yes, unless we're visited and we feel it's a threat, that'll change all conversations. The political spectrum will realign, yes. Shouldn't this be, like, I have no insight into what the process actually is in terms of, you know, who gets to look at the, all the classified information here, but shouldn't this be more than just the government and the Pentagon looking at this? I mean, shouldn't this be... Well, I haven't, I haven't given my, my core dump on you yet. Let, let, yeah. me, let me see yeah. if I can do that if, efficiently, Let's okay? What you need to do is not oh by the way this this video by this fellow who you said has maybe only 80,000 hits i don't uh, it's great that's great but i don't feel so obligated to have to say what it is i'm completely content saying i don't know what it is hmm. but the act of me saying i don't know what it is is not equivalent to me saying i know what it is it's aliens and it's that bridge that is built by ufo fans that is not built by the skeptic the skeptic is perfectly content you know i don't know what it is but 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 actually in this case at least for two of the most famous videos the debunking was really landed on on a plausible hypothesis i mean one and was that's just... great that's great but i don't want to pivot my commentary on whether or not we have a plausible right. debunking yeah. scenario yeah the burden is not on you to the burden is not on yeah. correct right. correct and I would also say that whatever confidence you have in your electronics, I'd still bet that there are artifacts in your electronics you have not thought about or considered 
that are more likely to me as an explanation of what you saw than intelligent aliens visiting from another planet. And you're saying it can't be the electronics. Well, how do you know it can't be? That's like saying my computer system is hack-proof. No, it's not. It's only hack-proof to people who are only as smart as you. <laughs> to someone smarter than you, it's hackable. That's the definition of not being as smart as someone who can pull that off on you. That's the whole concept. Mm -hmm. we, we, we touched on that with AI, right? AI will do things you can't figure out how to do. That's what AI is when it has achieved those levels. So you can't tell me you know every possible artifact. Every machine I've ever used has had artifacts. And what you do is you, 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 you characterize them in such a way so that you can remove them from the actual data you are trying to, to get. And you study what the artifact is later, okay? And, and so, but if you want to believe your artifact is real, then you're stuck saying, this has got to be hypersonic craft from China or aliens visiting. Now, here's my, I don't want to call it a rebuttal, but just, this is just how I think about it. I say to myself, six billion high resolution color photographs and videos are uploaded to the internet every day. Got that number from someone who works for Google. Mm. Six billion. Three billion smartphones are in use around the world today. The general public of the world, the citizens of the world, are unwittingly crowdsourced as observers of anything that could be visiting Earth. You could live stream your next encounter with an alien who's walking up to you. In the old days, they say, oh, they zapped my camera and now there's no film. Do you remember, you're old enough to remember, there were decades where people were saying, then Mac, the guy, what was his name? The Harvard psychologist who said yeah. he, under hypnosis, people are talking about uh, alien abduction. So there must've been thousands of these all the time. And I'm saying, okay, he gets it out of hypnosis. Now, it seems to me if an alien's walking towards you, you can live stream that. And that will go viral within minutes. Cat videos go viral mm. within minutes. So you know an alien walking towards you is going to go viral. That's There's it. no such. And, 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 the, and the accounts of alien abductions have dropped to near zero. That's fascinating. That is a, uh, a smoking gun for me epistemologically. I mean, just as a well, let's keep going. Wait, yeah. I have two more things to say. And now but, but let's just emphasize that point that as the technology with which to record human experience has become truly omnipresent, the first person testimony of abductions has dropped off to apparently nothing. Exactly. And you can't and you can't say, oh, I left my phone at home or I left it. Those don't work as excuses anymore, right? Because mm -hmm. everybody's always with their phone at all times. And yeah. and you're one click away from recording an event. But let me keep going. And um, believe it or not, I'm actually halfway through that, yeah. that argument. So then you have to ask, why let's assume they are aliens. Let's just let's give that. Why would they only reveal themselves to Navy pilots <laughs> or to the military. The military does not have eyes on the entire world the way 7 billion people do, okay? So yes, we do have, we do monitor. Yes, there are first, first alert things. Yes, I get that. But you want nice evidence of an alien spacecraft and the best thing you have for me with your highly sophisticated Navy equipment is a fuzzy monochromatic tic-tac? Hmm. 
I, t I tweeted this. I said, if that's your best evidence, you have more work to do. Really. It's like type, type Bigfoot into Google, okay? You type Bigfoot, and the first thing that comes up is the, the handheld home yeah, video camera uh, uh, movie camera was. footage yeah. from 1967. I'm saying, mm -hmm. if your best evidence is 50 years old, and everybody's got cameras now, you have to do better than that if you want to be convincing. So that's all I'm trying to say here. Mm. And I joke that maybe, you know, the aliens did land and they landed in San Diego during Comic-Con and nobody noticed. And they just went home and say, oh, they're just like us on Earth. <laughs> so I, I'm just thinking, I just, I'm, I'm waiting for better evidence than that. That's all. Mm. Maybe they are aliens, but I don't, you know. And by the way, I'm all into aliens. I, you know, I visited Roswell, New Mexico, and I visited the museum they had there. And, and I work professionally in a museum. Most of what they put forth would not count as authentic evidence for a museum exhibit. I just want to tell you that right now. But another problem is people think that high rank means your testimony has higher value. When in science, we know, are you human? That's all I have to know about the risk of you misreporting what it is you have seen. That's all. And this is why we have, of course, the scientific method. Because the last thing a scientist can say at a conference is, this is true because I saw it. Well, you got to do better than that. You leave and come back when you have something better that we can, mm -hmm. you know, analyze. And so, and one last thing, it's a little odd, you must admit, Sam, that the very agency that is perennially accused of cover-ups in support of what people have as their conspiracy theories about any number of things is the very agency that they are waiting with bated breath to see what they say about aliens. Like all of a sudden, the government is going to be some big, a big source of expertise that mm -hmm. they're now going to embrace. I don't see that happening. You know, I, here's, here's how I'll play it out. Let's, what are the Vegas odds? It's going to be, yeah, there's stuff we don't know what it is, but we have no evidence of alien craft ever. Nor do we have any photos or images of aliens or any highly uh, sufficiently resolved image to say, wow, let's study how that thing works. We don't have any of that, but we don't understand a lot of it. They'll mm -hmm. say, oh, how about the classified part? Oh, we, can't, we have to hold that back because it's classified. Trump said, I don't expect you to release non-classified material. So they're going to hold that back. And then you say, see, the government is still keeping a secret. And then one last thing. Do you really believe the government can keep a secret? Oh my gosh, you think th there's an alien in Area 51 and the janitor is not going to take a selfie with it and post that? Th that'll be the most famous janitor there ever was in the history of the world. And you think they're going to need to keep their, their, their federal job? No. So well, I, the government I, is I, really I must bad. Say, I must say I remain uh, quite impressed that we still haven't gotten Trump's tax returns. That, <laughs> so apparently they can keep that secret. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Plus, people think the government is some well-oiled, efficient machine that can somehow stockpile aliens and nobody else who has cameras can know about it, put it away and not have it leak, and have this be a successful operation. Anyone who's worked for the government knows how incompetent the government is at, those, at such activities. That's all I'm saying. Mm. So, I, fine, go try to find the aliens, but I'll be doing other stuff.
And by the way, they'll find the aliens and they'll be famous overnight. Fine. That's great. And by the way, if the actual alien lands, they'll, they'll, they'll be, have the urge to say, I told you so. And I'll say, no, there's some good evidence. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't take much it to convince would, everybody all at once. Hardly anything. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. I've heard you give this argument about, you know, if God and Jesus really wanted to convince everybody, even the most rabid atheists, that mm -hmm. they exist, it would be really easy yeah. to do so. It would be you over can, before the end of the day. Any yeah. number of dozens of experiments to 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 unfold. Yeah. Say, so, yep, we got you. Got this one. So, how what's your perception of the current epistemological climate, wherein we're we are trying to have conversations about this or any other fact? I mean, how do, how are you viewing the challenge of communicating science to the public? Or we're now at the, at least in the U.S. At a bright spot in the COVID pandemic, where you know, more or less anyone who wants a vaccine has gotten one, and um, we've had you know, 15 months or so to look at what politics does to a conversation about something that should be fairly easy to understand and, and become uncontroversial very, very quickly, and yet we found that it was almost impossible to talk about basic facts without being fragmented into warring political tribes. Yeah, it's sad. In fact, you wouldn't have a podcast if that state of the world were not as sad as it is. Your podcast, it, it pivots on the fact that people are not agreeing on things mm. they ought to. And you get to the bottom of all of it. And I think not enough people listen to your podcast because you are, you are uh, what I like about your podcast, and I'm an avid fan, is you are you are sensible, rational, clear, articulate, and there most people who are all of those things, they're they're inaccessible. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't. They don't know how to tell a joke. They're, you know, they 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 only briefly stepped out of the ivory tower to deign to speak with average folk. So um, all of those are true for you. So. And I worry that if, if, if what you're doing is not succeeding, then I don't have any hope. <laughs> I just give but, up now. But I mean, how, what, what did COVID do to your perception of this problem of persuasion? Yeah, it scared me. It, it scared me. I, my analog to this was that the virus was a shot across our bow. It was, here's a common enemy to all humans. There is no better or more opportune moment to, to abandon tribal divisive ways, gather together and fight this enemy as one. This is a shot across, this is a, this mm. is a dress rehearsal for an alien invasion. Yeah. All right, the aliens wanna kill humans, are we as humans gonna fight each other? And this was, you know, thankfully this was relatively mild compared to, to viruses we can imagine compared to alien invasions we can imagine. And so I'd give us sort of a C. Not a C minus because the, the, the vaccine came pretty fast. And with all of the challenges of distribution and, and I think it's not a D or an F. I, I give it a C, but Actually, that's still bad. I, I would want to split that differently. I would give molecular biology an A plus and public health and politics, uh, D minus. It was like, 
a split reality. The the vaccines. Yeah, that's that's where my C is coming from. Yeah, yeah it's the it's the split of those two realities. Yeah, and uh, so I've I've said this about flat earthers, which are closer to my world than yours. But I I said the fact that flat earthers thrive today is, is that, evidence of two. Is that even true? I haven't even wanted to interact with that factoid. Because yeah, you're, you're, I'm protecting you from it. Is Sam, it? So it, don't. <laughs> I mean, this, I mean J- Joe Rogan, I know, goes into these waters and, and deals with this, but I have not wanted to believe that there really are people at this point who believe the earth is flat. Is this, can you attest to this? Yes. So let me go one step further. And let's take a very visible celebrity, in celebrity in his, in his world, Kyrie Irving. Uh, a very famous and very talented basketball player. While he was with the Celtics, he's now with, I think, the Brooklyn Nets. He was very vocal in his social media saying he believes Earth is flat. He's convinced Earth is flat. And so I was going to get him on my podcast because mm-hmm. we do pop culture things. And, and, but in the time, it, it took a few months, then he had a complete 180 degree change. And he says, no, I don't believe it's flat. Well, they say, well, why? And he, confessed that he saw one video on YouTube on the flat earth and then YouTube handed him another video and then another and then another and this was a downward spiral into the flat earth averse and there were no countervailing videos offered him in the YouTube algorithms and he realized that he was pulled in with no chance of coming out and to me, that was most excellent evidence of this pernicious social media algorithming that goes on, where you just get yourself into a bubble and you think that is the universe. Mm-hmm. And that, and you've spoken about on many episodes with many different experts. So I don't want to claim to make that our topic here, but I will say that in response to flat earthers, I, I tweeted, I said, the existence of flat earthers in this, the 21st century, is evidence of two things. One, the protection of free speech. Two, the failure of our educational system. And I I, I hate to always put the blame there, but let me just say, I don't think people are taught what science is, nor how and why it works. And I've written on this, you know, science is the satchel of facts, and then they, if it's something doesn't match it, or the science changes, they say, I don't have to believe the science. People are not learning that science is a way of querying the world. It's a pathway to establishing an objective truth, a truth that exists independent of your opinions or how you feel about it. And this is, I, I, I wanted to spend a little time on this, this sort of truth hierarchy that, I don't want to call it a hierarchy, this truth, truth scale, okay? So there's like what I, I'll call personal truths. And these are like, Jesus is your savior, and no one is going to take that from you. And you have your own religious epiphanies, and that, and, or Muhammad is the last prophet. And there, in a free society, no one's going to take that away from you. That's your personal truth. It'll only be, that only becomes an issue if you try to force others to share that personal truth, because they might have a different personal truth. If they have a different personal truth, and they feel about it strongly, then the only way to convince them is maybe by force or by threat of death. And hence, you get religious wars. All right, those are personal truths. Then you have political truths, which is what becomes true just by incessant repetition. So, what's Hillary Clinton's first name? Really, it was Crooked Hillary, right? That's how we heard that, 
every time Trump spoke, crooked Hillary. So I can't think of Hillary without thinking the word crooked. He put that in my head, okay? And then you have the truth that science establishes with its methods and tools hard-earned over the last 400 years, not much before that. It was talked about, uh, the earliest uh, explication of this was in the golden age of Islam, Ibn al-Haytham hmm. ex expressed, he said, do what, you know, don't fool yourself into thinking something is true that isn't. That's basically the scientific method, but it wasn't really widespread and put into a big way till the 1600s. So in the last 400 years, we have established objective truths. And then I tweeted, the good thing about science is it's true whether or not you believe in it. By the way, I tweeted that and all kinds of people who don't follow my other tweets because it leaked out of the Twitter mm -hmm. column. And they jump out, how about when scientists said it was a flat earth? Well, of course, that's before 1600. Mm. How about, and they stood given all these things. And I said, you didn't read this other thing because you don't follow me. So you don't know what, what my whole storyline is here. But anyhow, I, I'm calling them truths because that's religious people call what their beliefs are truths. I'm not going to try to take that word away from this. No, you're all false. Yeah, let's see how, how, how effective that's going to be. You know what my father said, lost him three, four years ago. You know what he said? He said, uh, he was 89, so he had a full life. He said, Neil, it's not good enough to be right. You also have to be effective. Yeah. And I've never forgotten that. He's worked, he worked in city politics. He worked for Mayor Lindsay in New York City over those years, very turbulent years in the city. And he, his job was to get stuff done. And you, you can't just stand high and mighty declaring that you're right and everyone else is wrong if nothing you're saying or doing works. So no, I'm not going to take away the word truth. You look up the word truth, half the reference on Google, half the references are religious references. All right. So I, I'm given that. I don't have a problem. And political truths. Yeah. People think that what they believe is true because some politician repeated it and it got fed to them in the echo chambers of the YouTube channels. After that, we have science. So if you're going to base policy on something, it better be on an objective truth. Otherwise, you're going to sow the seeds of the unraveling of an informed democracy. Well, last time you were on the podcast, I um, tried to lure you onto questions of social justice and the politics of identity and the perennial question of race and racism, and uh, you uh, politely declined. I'm going to try yet again, and we can, we can see, we can see uh, what that gets us. Okay. But, uh, I mean, this it is of a piece with what you just said. It's just... What I've been trying to occupy for a few years now is something like a Lagrange point between wokeness and Trumpistan. So in criticizing the excesses of the far left, I would feel no pull into the excesses of the far right and, and vice versa. And, and I notice many people who I totally agree with when they're criticizing the left can't seem to accomplish not being pulled into sharing the sins of the far right and, again, vice versa. But it's always seemed obvious to me that it's just trivially easy to notice what's wrong on the far left and to notice what's wrong on the far right and to not be implicated in either, even if their defenders will try to implicate you. I mean, you'll be, if you're criticizing the identity politics of the left, Yes, people will call you a racist or a Nazi or a white supremacist or a Trumpist, but then you can disconfirm that hypothesis by, in the next breath, saying all of the things one must say 
to criticize Trump and what was wrong with the um, January 6th attempt to uh, destroy our democracy. I mean, it just, it's it, the litany of abuses on the right is just as long. But there is an asymmetry here, which many of us have had occasion to bemoan, which is that what's happening on the right, apart from the fact that it, in many respects, captured the presidency last time around, culturally speaking, it is a fringe phenomenon. I mean, you just, you don't have to burn much intellectual or ethical fuel to spell out what's wrong with white supremacy or neo-Nazis or the imbeciles who show up with tiki torches chanting, Jews will not replace us. That doesn't represent much of culture. And insofar as that the problem of that kind of racism and intolerance still exists in our society, it's already totally stigmatized by decent, sane, effective, to use your term, people. It just doesn't represent much of culture. It certainly, it doesn't represent our, our good institutions. But when you look at what's happening on the far left and what should be truly fringe claims, like, you know, mathematics is racist, you know, the idea of showing your work is racist, the idea of having a right answer to a, a problem is racist, those claims are not just coming out of the mouths of blue-haired maniacs. This is the kind of thing that is infecting the New York Times and even scientific journals like Nature and Lan- The Lancet and JAMA. And I mean, during COVID, there were just some insane claims from our best organs of, of science that seem to have become, at least on, the, on those topics, organs of you know, you know, critical race theory. So I'm just wondering how you perceive this moment. I'm wondering how you perceive the ways and uh, the degree to which politics has infected our discussion of facts, especially on the left. Because this is, it seems to me, it has, to a significant degree, captured or silenced the better part of corporations, especially in tech, the better part of media, the better part of academia, and the better part of journalism. And you, you certainly can't say that about the, the derangement coming from the right. So a couple of things. I don't have enough insight to address directly everything in your list there, but I have other things that relate to, I have other perspectives that, that orbit it or relate to it. So for example, um, the liberal left likes declaring that the conservative right is anti-science, and it's and that pivots on basically climate change. Right? There might be some other elements of that that they could cite, but it's that's the centerpiece right now. And of course, that offers an existential threat. But the same people who say that do that without critically examining the anti-science postures that exist and thrive in the liberal left. Somehow it doesn't get the same, pers- uh, the same kind of judgment that on the far right gets. And so among them is practically every sort of new age rejection of mainstream science is centered in the left. Practically, you know, crystal healing, spirit energy, a feather energy, you know, it goes on and on and on. The, the homeopathic... Yeah, vac- vaccine hesitancy. Okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. All of this requires, for you to embrace that, requires you reject 
some or all of the mainstream science related to that topic. That's science denial. And, but you don't get, and, and I see a lot of it. The difference is that denial tends to be a little more personal rather than existential relative to denying climate change. So uh, you can, you know, you, no one will chase after you if you rub your crystals together and, and you know, get a, a horoscope reading. No one's going to, you know, run after you for that in a free society. So, so in some ways, the science denial is a little more personal and a little more innocent, but it's still there. So the, the liberal left can't claim the high road. That's all I'm saying. They can claim a road, but it's not the high road. That's my first point. Now, here's a, just a little anecdote that I find myself going back to often. The uh, Andrewian, who is the uh, widow of Carl Sagan, and the secret sauce in all three cosmoses, she was co-author of the original 1980, the, 19, the 2014, and the 2020, those last two I had the privilege of hosting. A brilliant woman, brilliant writer. She, she's scientifically literate, and she feels the universe. She feels it. So almost every bit of Cosmos, the documentary that comes across as a, as a reaching into your soul of curiosity and wonder, that basically that comes from her. So we, in the, for, for the 2014, we're knocking on doors trying to find out who will fund this next iteration, this, this reboot of something that at that point was 35 years old. So we're knocking on doors and there we are. And the, the obvious choice is going to be PBS, of course. But PBS says, no, we want to put in our own writers. You guys are too old. There's next generation. And Anne said, no, we want to keep this. Do you know who gave us the freedom to do this? It was Fox. Hmm. Fox said, you know, we don't know anything about documentaries and we like the original Cosmos. So why don't you just do what you guys do best? Okay, so that was an interesting fact. All right, so Fox becomes the network that premieres the 2014 Cosmos. Now watch how this unfolds. I alert people of this in my liberal left academic circles. And the first response was, oh, are they gonna change it and turn it into an anti-science uh, uh, thing? Or they're gonna ruin it. And I said, well, what are you basing that? That's what Fox does. And they said, no, you mean Fox News. Well, that's still Fox. No, you mean Fox News. And do you realize that Fox flagship has The Simpsons? has Family Guy. These are sort of some of the most acerbically liberal shows there ever was on television. Did you know that Fox in the 1990s had the show in living color? Every show was, was a progressive indictment of the mores of society of the day. Not only that, Fox was Fox Searchlight Pictures. That's the indie arm of Fox. They brought Slumdog Millionaire to the screen. Hmm. They brought a Little Miss Sunshine to the screen. They brought Avatar, Fox's Avatar, for goodness sake. No one ever accused Avatar of being a, 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 a conservative conspiracy. Hmm. In fact, it's Pocahontas replayed on another planet. Okay? So what I learned was the people, the farther left you were, the broader was the brush with which you painted the conservative right. And you got so deep into the liberal brush and bramble that you could not notice that Fox News is a different editorial entity from every other branch of the Fox enterprise. And Rupert Murdoch 
goes all the way to the bank because all of these roads go back to his pocket. Fine. You can indict Robert Rupert Murdoch, but the fact is he's got everybody coming and going on the entire breadth of the political spectrum. And and so I, I noticed this. And not only that, when I went to work a, a tour of duty in Washington under President George W. Bush, okay, I was on two commissions under him in the Bush White House. By the way, he appointed me knowing I I I'm I lean left and liberal and I read the New York Times. That was the interview. They said, well, we want to appoint you to this commission to study the future of aerospace. And I said, are you sure you got the right guy? Oh, yeah, we read your writings. We, we're the right guy. And they said, well, what, uh, have you ever protested? No, not really. Uh, what magazines do you read? Well, I read this. I read the New York Times. And then they said, what do you think of the president's policies? Okay. This was like a month after he was inaugurated. And I said, well, I try to say something positive because I said, I applaud his attempts to surround himself with talented people. Hmm. Because back then he had just appointed uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice, who was provost at Princeton. He appointed a guy from the Bronx, because I'm from the Bronx, Colin Powell, right? Hmm. These, are, these, are, these are talented people. I said, I applaud his attempt to surround himself with talented people so that he can make the best decision he can in the interest of this nation. That's what I said. I wanted to say, how, how can he be? And he can't even pronounce the word nuclear right. and he can control the yeah. nuclear button. I, that would not have been productive. So I didn't. So I said that and they, I was appointed on a presidential commission. He appointed me a Democrat. Okay. Because they asked, are you registered? Yeah, I'm a registered Democrat. So I'd hear people saying, oh, Bush is stacking the committees with only his people. That is false. That is simply false. Then I heard people say, I heard people say, Oh, well, then you, he needed you because he needed a black person on the 12-member panel. There were two other black people on this panel, okay? So, so it was like the, the farther left you were, the more blind you were yeah. to what's actually happening. And the same is true if you go deep right. The deep right, I don't know what they think the, the people on the, on the left do. They eat their babies or something. I don't know what they think they do. But when I have to migrate to the center, to be on this commission, because I'm working with educated uh, Republicans and educated Democrats. I was with the head of management of Lockheed Martin and the head of their labor union. They were both on this commission. And I'm hearing these very different points of view from opposite sides of the fence. And I'm saying, wow, most of the time, nobody is ever paying attention or listening. And I did, could not see that until I walked towards the middle. Yeah. So. I don't know if I would label myself as politically middle, but my brain is in the middle because I want to hear what people have to say. And I will not judge everything there is to know about you for me having heard that there's a label that either other people give you or that you give yourself. But what... what Sorry, I got all excited. Yeah, yeah. But you started. But I'm wondering, what, what would your advice be? I mean, if you were in... If you could steer our political conversation here with offering everyone a a firmware upgrade to how you see it. How do you think we should be talking about a variable like race now in our society? Obviously, there are real problems of wealth inequality and other kinds of inequality that we want to remedy, and these are correlated with race. They're not only correlated with race, but they, you know, there, there certainly is a correlation there that, that many have noticed. So, I mean, what, you know, one way to come at it, if, if you're going to talk about wealth inequality, you could just talk about that and you could deal with the problems of class and know that you'd be helping disproportionately 
black and 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 latino people this that's the race neutral way to approach that right right we seem to have a whole generation of activists who think that martin luther king jr's vision of getting beyond race was ill conceived now and is, is in fact it's when coming from the wrong identity is itself a symptom of racism the idea that you're ever going to be colorblind is not only a pretension, it's a fig leaf for your own racism. Our conversation about even what the goal is now seems to be tangled with very different political and, and ethical intuitions. Where would you want to reboot from if we could reboot? I, I view it a little differently, and this is maybe a cop-out, so mm. I beg forgiveness in advance that this may sound like a cop-out. But when you look at the demonstrations this past summer, and, they, and even some right out the street in front of my window, which is when I wrote this bit called Reflections on the Color of My Skin. If you could put a link in your, in your mm. thing, that yeah. would be just in case anyone is interested. I basically never write about the color of my skin, but to see protesters out front and watching people screaming back and forth, I just could not sit silent and idle. So I wrote a bit about reflections on the color of my skin. I invite all of your, your people to read it. It's not a five-minute read. I, the way I view it all is, so the people who saw the George Floyd murder and reacted justifiably in every emotional, political, psychological way that you can, I, I viewed it differently. It was, uh, no, let me, let me back up, sorry. So the, the Rodney King beating. All right. Uh, if you ask people, you know, why were there riots in LA? What caused the riots? It's all oh, because Rodney King was beaten. No, that's not what caused the riots. LA was silent. LA was quiet after the beating and long after the beating. It, the only way uh, LA came unglued was when the officers were acquitted. Hmm. And when I first saw that video, I remember thinking this. And Here's something I probably a white person doesn't think. I said to him, I'm a black man, all right? And there's a black man getting bludgeoned by multiple police officers as he's being tased, right? So I said to myself, oh, we finally have one of those on video. So maybe this time there'll be justice. That's all, that's, I, that's what I said. Mm. I wasn't even shocked by it. It was like, yeah, okay, we finally got one on video. And then there was no justice. And so, so there's, you're, you're, you're adding more sort of gunpowder to the powder keg here, all right? Every time this happens and every time there isn't justice, there's more powder keg and the fuse is getting shorter. And so, there I, so now we're in the era where everyone has a video camera. And so I declare that we've made progress since when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up, Black youths would be shot and killed, and it might make the local news. Whereas today, if a black person, or really any person, is shot and unarmed, is shot and killed, or shot for any reason, it is national news. That's progress. Okay? Everybody knows about basically every incident. Whereas when I grew up, no one knew about any of the incidences unless you were next of kin. Mm. So to me, that's progress. So all of the marching, 
I saw was, wow, okay, we didn't quite have this luxury to march this way in the 60s. We're still in the middle of the Vietnam War, and there was so much other inequities, you know, before you could even get there. We all knew that we were getting shot in the, and, and my mother gave me the talk, all right? I'm eight years old. If the police stopped you, do this, okay? And don't do that. And said it to my brother, who's two years older, and it was a little more street person than I was. He had to, he got more of this, right? That's, we got this from my mother so that she wouldn't have dead children, okay, coming up through. We grew up in New York City in the Bronx. So here's the point. That's way too much introduction for my simple point I'm trying to make. Your frustrations, not being able to reach the full out leftists who are engaging in these conversations. I don't think that's so bad. I think what's happening is you have to be that far left to move the center of mass of the system into a new place. It's not going to happen. It's like, you know, how, how stretched is the rubber band you're pulling on, okay? If you don't pull on it much, it might not pull at all, and everybody else pulling the other direction will win. So you have to, you have to go there. Otherwise, the concept, like you said, a firmware upgrade, I like that analogy, and I've heard you use it before, and I've used it for having heard you use it because it's so brilliant and simple, and everyone knows what it means. The firmware upgrade is you need the leftists to wake up everybody else to have them understand where the inequities are. They're not going to turn the rightists into leftists, but they'll turn the rightists into a centrist, maybe, okay? And that's progress. That's the kind of progress my father would embrace. Yeah, I guess oh, I have a more pessimistic view of what is actually <laughs> happening now. <laughs> I, I'm noticing okay. signs of regress. But <laughs> what bothers me about what's happening on the left is the, I mean, I, I get this idea that you, you know, an overcorrection might be part of the process, but this is, an, this is, this is not staying on the fringe. I mean, we're, we're now seeing to my eyes, a pervasive dishonesty in media and Hollywood and tech. And it's, it's among the elites. I mean, you have people who are... People in power. People in power are silenced because they're terrified of their woke employees, but they really are terrified. I mean, you have just the instantaneous capitulation of the most powerful corporations on earth to something that happens on Twitter or a, you know, a, a letter that gets circulated among their employees. I mean, recently, you had a firing at Apple that was accomplished by 2,000 employees signing a, a petition that someone should be fired over a book he had written you know, years before he got hired by Apple. And the book was a bestseller and favorably reviewed by people on the left at the time. But oh, oh, oh the landscape is shifting underneath everyone's feet. Yeah, That's right. That's yeah, interesting. But it's just, that, yeah, but we're talking about the most powerful people in our society are are sitting on their hands because their their economic interests seem to demand it, and it's it does have the character of a kind of moral panic where we believe we are we are experiencing problems that we're almost certainly not experiencing, or at least they're, they're different than is being advertised. I mean, just take the, the problem of police violence. I, mean, I, I was as shocked as anyone by the murder of George Floyd and, the, and the, I mean, just the, the, the obvious police incompetence and sadism and, and just lunacy that was on display in the behavior of Derek Chauvin. I mean, I thought it was, I found it very difficult to interpret what he was doing there, I mean, what his motives could possibly have been or what his perception of the situation could have been to 
to have warranted warranted you know those those minutes with his knee on Floyd's neck. So I certainly expected him to spend something close to the rest of his life in prison for as a result of what he did there. But it's just simply a fact that you can find evidence of police misconduct of every other flavor that's just as egregious. I mean, you can find white people who've had their life snuffed out by cops who are sitting on them and and even telling jokes. I mean, the, the Tony Timpa video that was widely circulated, again, only on the right here because the mainstream media won't touch this stuff. But we've created a kind of, you know, with these cell phones that are ubiquitous, we've created a kind of pornography of outrage that has advertised to us what seems to be an epidemic of sadistic and racist violence by sadistic and racist cops. But it's, it is a, a total distortion of these, these statistics that we have every right to believe we understand about the reality of police violence at this moment in American history and going back now decades. And you know, so the people who have done this work Show that the, no, this is there's not an epidemic of of racist violence directed at young black men by cops at this point. I would certainly grant you that Los Angeles in the early '90s was a different situation. So I, it feels like we're driving ourselves crazy by how we are exaggerating things, cherry picking things, distorting things, and certainly among activists, there is just no disposition to get the facts straight. I mean, this is, this is another asymmetry that I've noticed when you're talking about the, you know, what it's like to interact with the far left and the far right. It is far more frustrating and deranging for me to try to deal with what's coming at me from the far left than from the far right. I mean, this has been a routine experience I've had now for a decade and a half touching controversial issues. I mean, when I'm dealing with someone from the far right, they may despise me. I mean, they, they may think that I should be killed for my thought crimes, but they're far less likely to actually distort my positions on any topic. I mean, they actually take my positions as they are. You know, they may hate me because I'm Jewish. They may hate me because I'm an atheist. They may think I'm going to hell. But what I'm not going to get is a just an endless series of cynical, gaslighting, bad faith takes on what I just said. On the left, that's virtually all I get. And that asymmetry bothers me because I'm attempting to, to, to you know, kind of widen the purview of the reality-based community here and, and talk about facts honestly, and then we can prosecute our, our disagreements on, on, the, on that basis. But I mean, what we're noticing coming from the left now is a, an appetite for destroying the reputations of people for reasons that are, this goes under the the meme of you know you have to break eggs to to make an omelet. There there are people who are being scapegoated for sexism or racism or transphobia or whatever you know pick your sin, who they know are not guilty of these things, but it's just they're they're this the you know this the sacrificial object that needs to be hurled from the ramparts to perhaps they would follow your logic to drag everything leftward. You know you have to be that extreme. But it's, it is stifling honest conversation in science and elsewhere in media to a degree that I, you know, I'm, I'm totally unfamiliar with. I mean, maybe this, maybe this was true a few decades ago 
when political correctness first became a, a meme, and I was just too young to appreciate it. But it does really feel like a new moment of moral panic on the left, which is capturing so much of the mainstream. Well, I was in college in the late 70s, if you can think back that far. Hmm. And that's when I first heard the term political correctness. And even then, there were people who would be protested from speaking who were invited to campus. And I, even then, I thought, they're just talking, right? They're not, you know, they're not like, why can't we just hear? Well, because they think this and we don't, and we object. And so maybe these were just long tap roots of what's now sprouting and with, with many more occasions to, to take bud, right? To, to, hmm. to, to hang on. And so can I mix my metaphor mm. any more than that? <laughs> this <laughs> so, is a free space. <laughs> so, so I'm free to mix my metaphors on your show. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I don't have a silver bullet. I, I'm disappointed mm. when I see deep into the far left where they, like you said, the, the cherry picking of information to fulfill an ideal rather than to follow evidence or facts. We try to promote that in Cosmos. You know, what, I'm, what, what maybe we should be asking how much worse would things be were it not for the efforts of these, you know, machines that are in place that are trying to get people to think rationally about the world. Maybe we should celebrate the little bit that's there rather than lament how much it, it isn't. I also worry that the more radicalized the left gets, the right has to feels obligated to be that much more radical against them and vice versa. So that it's, yeah. I'm reminded of a New Yorker comic where this was relative to the Cold War, but it could apply today, just simply to the left and the right. Two people are facing each other with a bow and arrow pointed at each other. And they each say simultaneously, the harder I pull, the safer I feel. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was just very clever uh, capturing yeah. of this mania really yeah so yeah i don't i don't know is it a pendulum that's swinging does does one generation have to get old i mean what what would what would the, would the conservative what did the conservative people think when they saw all these hippies protesting in the 1960s i mean they must have felt that was the beginning of the end of civilization right so so i i, I don't know if we're in unique times but i i can tell you this and maybe this is the evidence and this is not something you would necessarily have the occasion to think about, but any black person and any woman can say the following. If you invent a time machine, there is no time in the past where a black person or a woman will go where they are better off than they are in this moment. Whatever problems we are encountering today, do not send me into the past because yeah. it was worse. And that, and that would be said of if you're gay, if you're a woman, if you're anyone who is a sort of oppressed minority. So I remind myself of that in, a, in the time machine paradigm. And I say, send me into the future. Yeah. Because the arc of progress bends towards justice eventually. <laughs> yeah. Well, may it be so. Maybe the aliens will land and give us a unifying problem to solve. <laughs> yeah. I thought COVID was that alien, but apparently not. No, we need Tic Tacs. <laughs> well, Neil, it's always great to hear your voice. And uh, thank you again for taking the time to uh, walk through all this with me. Once again, the book is 
cosmic queries, and um, we touched just a tiny fragment of it. So I highly recommend that people check it out. And anything else you want to put on my audience's radar? Is there any, anything you're doing? You're, you're going on real time soon, which I think is... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just in a couple of days. Yeah. 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 And with, with Bill Maher. In fact, it had gotten postponed because he tested positive yeah. for COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Tested the same day I was, and I was ready to fly out, and they, there they, and they up and canceled it. No, but I host the podcast, Star Talk. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, you come for the fun, but you stay for the science. And we just have fun with science as it manifests in every facet of pop culture because science is not an ignorable phenomenon in our lives. It is there manifesting everywhere. And so uh, Star Talk is a celebration of that. And this book is a celebration of Star Talk. So it's all, it's one and the, and the same. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. uh, I look forward to the next time, Neil. It's never enough, but uh, keep going. Yeah, okay. Uh, thanks, Sam. Excellent. <laughs>